Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We continue with the second half of American History Series podcast with episode number 41. In episode 40, I deviated from the chronological history, survey history of the second half of American history by looking at specifically the development of nuclear weapons from the original test explosion in Alamogordo, New Mexico on August, or excuse me, July 16th, 1945, all the way through to the still yet successful SDI program or Strategic Defense Initiative launched in the Reagan administration. Nevertheless, just showing the ongoing efforts to try to make nuclear weapons lighter, faster, and easier to use than the generations before. So with the 41st podcast, we're going to continue on now looking at what has been dubbed the confident years in American history, which is from 1953 to 1964. That is a title. However, the confident years is not one I certainly would apply. I'm sure the Kennedy family would not agree with that considering that they lost their one and only president of the United States, John F. Kennedy, in November of 1963. But nevertheless, it is the general sum total of the way Americans felt in this particular time period. So with 1953, we see the onset of the Eisenhower administration with White David Eisenhower, also known as Ike, winning the presidency in a landslide against Illinois' Adelaide Stevenson. Please know, while Stevenson made an, uh, certainly a great effort to try to win the presidency, to try to win the election in 1952, he's going to try again in 1956. The bottom line is, is there may not have been a Democrat alive that would have had the reputation as Dwight Eisenhower what is considered or who is considered to be the hero of the second world war in the european theater with the successful invasion of the of operation overlord the invasion of normandy to overthrow eventually adolf hitler's nazi regime the amount his reputation the amount of pride that he brought to the american people was incredible when the stories returned stateside of the successful invasion of France, pioneered and led by Dwight Eisenhower, General five, at that point five-star General Dwight Eisenhower, the amount of euphoria and pride in the American people was arguably like, like those that have not been felt or experienced in some cases decades. For example, Vicksburg, Mississippi, for the first time in 81 years, actually celebrated the 4th of July. Because prior to that, there was so much animosity 
due to their siege in the American Civil War back in 1863 by Ulysses Grant and the Union forces that, again, the people of Vicksburg did not celebrate and would not celebrate the 4th of July for another 81 years. So Eisenhower comes in in a landslide. Please know that he was not an ardent Republican any more than he was an ardent Democrat. He did come in. He registered as a Republican. Please know prior to that, he had never held elective office. Most elections in American in his lifetime, he was not able to participate and vote simply because of his assignments due to the, his being in the military. So it wasn't, again, this, uh, the whole idea of mail-in voting wasn't available in those days. And again, it wouldn't have been something that he would have access to. So upon coming into office, Eisenhower did have plans on how he wanted to at least be able to improve the American landscape in his either one or two terms. Now, as my listeners remember that the American president can now only serve two terms because in 1950, the Republicans had rammed through both houses of Congress all the way through to the state houses as well, making this now constitutional amendment that no president of the United States can serve more than two terms. So Eisenhower knows either has four or eight years if he's going to leave his mark on the presidency and on the country in a way that came after his successful invasion of Normandy. What he will begin working on shortly after taking office on January 20th, 1953, is what becomes known as the Federal Highway Act. The actual act is linked to 1956, but the work on that started long before. The reason for this particular project that Eisenhower wanted to spend and focus so much time on is because when he entered office, half of America's roads were not even paved. And he found this out the hard way when during the Second World War, he had to travel by car or Jeep from the East Coast to the West Coast And he was appalled that it took the amount of time that it did. On average, it was 62 days to drive across the country. And Eisenhower, again, was just astonished in a negative way that it took so long. The fact also that America's canals, rivers, and railroads were more efficient than our streets and highways. The act, as it would start in an election year when he would throw in his hat for a second term in 1956, the act would start the largest earth-moving project the world had witnessed up until that time. It would cost over $129 billion adjusted to 2012 dollars. It would constitute 2.4 billion work hours and move 42 billion cubic yards of dirt, enough to fill 8 million football stadiums. But when completed, an eventual 46,000 miles of paved highway would connect practically every corner of the lower 48 states. And some of these are most, uh, most isolated areas I myself have traveled to. For example, the pinky, if you look at it that way, that's, that sticks out from the state of Wisconsin, right from Green Bay in an area called Dora County, Wisconsin. Yes, there's actually concrete that brings you all the way up to Gills Rock, right at the tip of that peninsula. 
going to the East Coast, out to what seems to be the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, which it isn't at all, but it appears that way for how far out one single highway, Highway 12, can take individuals down the outer banks of North Carolina. One might ask, how and why would the American people have paid for such a project? Because traveling from coast to coast, an event that once took, again, just over two months, could now, if you were willing to drive through the night, could now take as little as four to five days. While that project clearly was one of fame for the Eisenhower administration, as yes, it was faster now to get to grandma's house versus having to go through the meadows and over the hills. Now one could get to the grandparents' house, could get to where they needed to go on that concrete or asphalt connection that now again is linking all 48 states. The real motivation for the Federal Highway Act though had nothing to do with Americans going on vacation or traveling to visit loved ones. Rather, the highways would have a military priority. That's the reason why the highways are the, more specifically, the interstates. For example, one of the longest ones in America, Interstate 80, that travels through several states. That is a federal highway. While there Maintenance is shared with the individual states in which the highway travels to. During the Cold War, this is not the case any longer, but during the Cold War, one, if they were really savvy as they were driving along, would notice that after every roughly five miles, that five miles of bends, five miles of going under a bridge, an overpass, seeing billboards along the road, all common sites along America's highways, one might notice that after five miles, there would be one mile of roadway that was ramrod straight with no bridges, no overpasses, no billboards. It was completely barren. And then after that roughly distance of one mile, then there could be a slight bend in the road again a bridge, a tunnel, etc. The reason being is that that one mile stretch was a future landing strip. Should Americans need to be evacuated from major cities in an impending nuclear war or to be able to get America's armed forces or government officials from one point to another, every five miles or so there would be a landing strip for the government, for military purposes. So again, that's, that's what's not commonly known as the real reason for the Federal Highway Act. But also at this time, now that America was being connected through asphalt and concrete in a way never witnessed before in our own American history, the post-World War II automo uh, American automobile boom also started with V16s that were once more common than not, Powering those massive steel-framed cars were now cut down to V8s. This was allowing the United States to build eight out of every ten cars that rolled off an assembly line. Eight out of ten of them around the world came from the United States. Each day at our peak of automobile production, 20,000 cars were rolling off of America's assembly lines. And they weren't just cars for useful purposes like the station wagon 
or the four-door sedans or the two-door coupes. We were starting to produce, shall we say, other types of cars that had, quote-unquote, other uses. For example, this would also be the day of the advent of the sports car. What I would encourage you to do, especially my international listeners who may not be familiar with the American sports cars in their origins in the 1950s, to look up on your search engine of choice, look up the 1955 or early or mid-50s Ford Thunderbird. That was Ford's contribution, major contribution to the sports car arena. General Motors looked over to Chevy to produce what became known as the Corvette. If one looks at these automobiles, and more specifically looks at, look, take a look at the interior of these cars, and what do you notice, or what don't you notice, is a lot of room. No, these cars are not for going to the grocery store to put a dozen or so bags of groceries for the large American families as we're heading into the baby boomer generation. Not at all. These cars are generally two-seaters and more often than not convertible automobiles. What And the reason for my stressing this, though, is that this, the fact that America is producing a sports car also meant that America was doing well off financially. Again, as I stressed after the Second World War, America was the only country in the world whose economy was stronger after the war than it was going into the war. Because of that, Americans were making money hand over fist, and the fact that those sports cars could be designed and sold as fast as they could get into the showrooms also demonstrated just the luxury that America was able to pay for and engage in in this 1950s era of confidence. Many of those railroad towns that popped up with the advent of the Transcontinental Railroad in the mid-1860s, because of the National Highway Act, many of those old railroad towns were now becoming ghost towns because the cars also helped to be able to get people in and out of the major cities in order to go into the closer areas right outside or below the urban areas lending to the term suburb. So America's suburbs, sub meaning below or outside of the, the highly concentrated urban or city area, was the rise of the suburbs in American, or the establishment of the suburbs in American history. And I want to just pause right now before we get into the suburbs and what, what those constituted in American history by doing a brief stretch back or reaching back all the way to the podcast in my series in the first half of American history by looking at the Jamestown settlement. From Jamestown, and if you recall, if you've been listening to my podcast in chronological order as I've recovered, I'm recording them, and I'm just doing literally just a few second recap here, but Jamestown, right on the Atlantic coast, one fort, one church, and a few huts for the European colonizers. From there, we expanded and we continued to expand. And by the 1950s, America was launching the biggest housing project ever started. One house would be completed for every, in every 16 minutes of the average workday. 
there would be 13 million homes just between the years of 1945 and 1955 alone. Americans, American families, we needed elbow room. We needed more houses. Why? Because baby boomers were being born every 10 seconds. And the houses were affordable. Brand new house sold for roughly $8,000 in the late 40s, early 50s, equivalent to about $73,000 in the 2010s. We also were bringing in and seeing a continued advancement in the role of technology. In short, whatever Americans wanted, we found it. And if we couldn't find it, we created it. And it is not as though that these are American inventions, not at all. But the aqueducts, for example, our Roman Empire introduction, American aqueducts were allowing us to move and stay out west at a volume never seen before in American history. Air conditioning was allowing us to enjoy the southern states and those hotter, more humid climates once again. After 1950, more Americans would move to the South, surpassing the number proportionately that left the South after the American Civil War. A washing machine, a last quick example, that was taking a six-hour job and slashing it down to 45 minutes. And worrying about throwing all that wet laundry after it was done from the washing machine and hauling it outside, not any longer because that unit right next door to the washing machine, the gas or electric dryer, would then also take a job and slash that time down as well. Did Americans always have everything they needed for these objects? Not necessarily. And that's where consumer credit was also expanding. Store charge cards were now giving way to Visa, to MasterCard. These would be the types of plastic that would be accepted in more and more stores and services around the United States as time went on. The automobile allowing us to move into suburbia also meant that Americans wanted shopping to be a little bit more local. And that's now where we get into the shopping malls. So the malls and the towns themselves in suburbia were being built around and because of the American automobile. Las Vegas, Disneyland, Disney World, and even the water parks in Sandusky, Ohio. These are amusement slash recreational areas that if you've ever been to any of them and you're paying attention as you're driving towards the amusement parks, you'll realize that those are not exactly right next to downtown. They are way off the beaten path. Why? Because that's where the property taxes would be the lowest and the entrepreneurs or the investors, they want to keep those expenses down because amusement parks have a huge appetite for land. So the furthest out that we can get those amusement parks, the less the tax revenue one had to allocate for land. And as a result, because of the automobile, Americans could get there from their house or from work to those amusement parks in a matter of minutes or up to perhaps an hour. Television was also working its way into America's living rooms. The popular shows initially that were adapted to the rate from the radio shows were also now becoming more and more trendsetters because Americans were looking at the characters and what they were wearing, 
what they were eating versus using our imagination. This is part of the reason why the initial negative nickname for the television, the idiot box, came into being. Think about this. Think about your and I ask you to, to pause it here for a moment and just think about your absolute favorite comedy or drama television show. Imagine if the only way that you could engage in that would not be to watch it on TV, but to listen to it on the radio. Think about how much more focused you would have to be because as characters are introduced, you in your own mind are going to Imagine and create what that person looks like to you, what they might be dressed in. You'd imagine what the setting is, whether they're in a house, a bedroom, a living room, or outside, or at a restaurant. All of those details would be left to your, the listener's, imagination. Not anymore. With the advent of the television, even though initially it would be in black and white, our sense of engaging in our, in our imagination would plummet as now those questions about what they looked like, where they were, etc., all now would be answered. At the same time that television is making its way in, that doesn't mean radio was on its way out. Not at all. This is where music was beginning to go into different arenas as well. The instrumentals would be for the older generations who would look to like those types of songs. By instrumentals, I mean those songs from the World War II years. Songs like, again, that we talked about before during the Second World War, You Belong to Me and Don't Sit Under the Apple Tree with Anyone Else But Me. Those vocals could then be trans described, if you will, or transposed into instrumentals without the voice, allowing again that generation to listen to those songs with a sense of nostalgia. Rock and roll was also working its way in brand new for the younger generations. Please know, though, that a lot of these rock groups and rock bands not taking anything away from their form of creativity and the kind of impact that they could have on their listeners. Many of those rock bands, however, adopted quote-unquote tools from the classical composers in the days when operas were the rage. Take, for example, the Beach Boys. If again, you want to pause it here and look up on your search engine, Beach Boys, and look up the song, I Get Around. Listen to that song, even if it's just for the first, say, 15 or 20 seconds. And what I'm asking you to listen for is that when the Beach Boys initially attempted to try to get into a recording and to get listed with a record producer, they were told that collectively their voices were too low. So that's when they reached back again to the age of the opera, which is still done to this day. And they tried something called a falsetto. A falsetto, which is a voice in the background that is at a different level than the major voices that are singing. And if you listen to I Get Around, and I promise I'm not going to attempt to sing this for you, especially if you're just eating or you're eating as you're listening to this, you do not need to hear my singing. But if you listen to I Get Around, you'll hear the way that song starts, and they're all low voices. And once they get into the major theme of the song, you'll notice a very high-pitched male voice in the background. That's Brian Wilson. 
And if you listen to I Get Around and specifically focus on that falsetto by Brian Wilson, you'll notice that most of what he is coming out of his mouth are not words to the song. He is just carrying the melody and echoing that at a much higher pitch than his male counterparts in the rest of the band. So they try that with a higher voice, as other rock bands will do. Some rock bands that have a collectively a higher voice will try it with a lower voice falsetto. Again, that's what the falsetto is. And it, as I say, it's not new, but it's being applied in a different way. Rock and roll artists, country groups as well, folk groups also dared to mix things up that was considered entertainment taboo prior to the age of the 50s into the 60s. For example, if you notice when I said the Beach Boys, the Cordettes, the Andrews Sisters, the McGuire Sisters, the Andrew Brothers, the Brothers Four, these are groups that are either all male or all female. So when a group got together that consisted of two men and two women, they were told at the outset that, sorry, you don't mix up men and women's voices, not for this type of music that is now being produced. The days of the opera, fine, but not as we're heading into the 50s and 60s. So the first rock group that arguably made its way into fame that combined male and female voices was none other than the relatively short-lived Mamas and the Papas. It would be John Phillips and his wife Michelle Phillips and Mama Cass Elliot and Denny Doherty that would come together and initially again were told, nope, sorry, we're not even going to bother listening to your songs, much less offering you recording because you don't mix male and female voices. And eventually somebody dared to listen and were astonished at the songs that they sang. Monday, Monday, California Dreaming. These are songs, again, that mix up, that also use falsettos as well, and we're breaking that glass ceiling. Unfortunately, because of the interpersonal dynamics of the mamas and the papas, specifically the one mama, Michelle Phillips, married to John, one papa, but was also sleeping with the other papa, Denny Doherty. What made that worse is that Mama Cass was also supposedly very fond of, if not in love with, Danny Doherty as well. Well, eventually those interpersonal dynamics broke that group up, but the ceiling was broken for me, male and female artists to come together, which would then pave the way for the most popular rock group in terms of selling more songs than any other uh, group for singles and doubles, etc., and that would be none other than ABBA, not even an American group, but one that made its way into the American stage. So this again, in this podcast episode number 41, looking at the way that American life was getting rooted in here in the age of Eisenhower and the gleaming 1950s known as the confident years. That's not to say though, that unfortunately you knew I was going to bring you back to reality, to the other part of reality, I should say, that let's face it, listeners, a war is still going on. 
and you scratch your head and say, okay, well, where's he going with this? He already talked about the, the, the Korean War. Yep, no, we already talked about that. That's, that war is not technically over because it was never a war. But I'm talking about the Cold War. That's still raging. The Soviet Union is still the arch nemesis of the United States of America and vice versa. And during the 1950s, as we were breaking the ceilings on where we lived, what credit cards we used, rock groups breaking glass ceilings about using falsettos and combining male and female voices, there was another group of people also breaking a ceiling. And it wasn't a glass ceiling. It was a roughly 63,000 mile gap of atmosphere that was going to be broken as the Soviet Union launched into outer space for the first time. That would terrify America. And it was for this reason that America would have a jolt of reality and a brand new organization to catch up with the Soviet Union would begin to take place. And that's what we'll get to with the next podcast in our series in the second half of American history. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsola.com, and email me with any questions you might have, especially book recommendations as well. And if you like what we discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.